I put on each table a list of the seven churches that are described in chapters 2 and 3. And as we look at these churches, I want you to remember a couple of things. One, these are actual, real churches in the day in which John is writing. Um, he, he's writing to specific people who are going through specific experiences. And he's addressing those experiences to those people. There are, uh, there are folks who believe that the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 represent time periods that you can, you can see in those seven churches, um, kind of church history, if you will. I don't think that's the case. I think we have to, I think there's not scriptural evidence for that. You kind of have to go to it with that in mind in order to see it that way. Um, those who do see it that way would, would say that we live in the age of the seventh church, Laodicea. And Laodicea is known for being lukewarm. And so there is, I can see why folks would see that when they look at uh, the 21st century church, especially the 21st century church in uh, North America where we don't really have persecution yet. Um, it is very easy to become lukewarm when there's no persecution kind of pushing the issue. And, um, and so in that way, I do see some parallels between our current church environment and the church at Laodicea. But I want to argue that I see parallels in all seven churches. Of, and, and those parallels uh, can be found, I believe, in the church, uh, in all churches throughout history. And, and I'm going to show you one of the reasons I think that, and it's simply this, that in almost every time he addresses one of the churches, and then at the very end, after he has addressed all seven, he says in different ways, those of you who are willing to listen, listen to what I'm telling the churches. Now, he stresses that so many times that I believe he is saying, I am speaking directly to real churches, but I want everyone to hear me. I want you to listen to what I'm saying to them. If we relegate the seven churches to seven time periods, then we don't even have to really pay attention to one through six. All we have to listen to is seven. And I don't think that was intended with this text. So in my, my interpretation is that these are seven literal churches in seven real places. They had real people and going through real things, okay? Since uh, Jack Graham carried you through the first church, uh, I, won't, uh, I won't cover that ground again. But I am kind of curious, did, did you notice if he got to verses 6 and 7? toward the end of the discussion of the church at Ephesus. Did anybody notice for sure? Okay, all right, good. I was hoping he covered that, so I don't have to. Uh, verse, uh, verse 7 of chapter 2 is... Um, Yeah, verse 7 of chapter 2 is that first, or that first um, 
example of what I was show, saying to you. You see in that verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We're going to see a, um, a repeating system, if you will, or an outline, if you want to use that term, as he deals with each of the seven churches. There's a common outline. It starts with Jesus being addressed in a way that ties him to that image that we saw in chapter 1. You remember that powerful image that we broke down phrase by phrase that talked about Jesus being the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. He had a two-edged sword for a tongue. He had fiery eyes. He had bronze feet. John now breaks down that image, and he uses a different part of it for each church as he describes Jesus. Each letter starts that way. Then in each letter, there is a commendation. There's a... Uh, the, Jesus says to the messenger of each church, you're doing these things well. All right? And then for all but one, there is a warning. He says, you're doing these things well, but you need to fix this problem. And there's only one church where he doesn't point out that there's a problem that needs to be fixed. And then toward the end, uh, in each case, toward the end, there is what we might call a blessing where he says, those of you who get this and you follow through and you stay faithful, you're going to get this blessing. And then in most cases, he reminds us again, those who have an ear to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Right. <clears throat> so you looked at the loveless church. Uh, in Ephesus, the idea that you have forgotten or forsaken your first love, um, I know that Graham did a good job of reminding you that that's not first in chronology, but it's first in importance. It's not that Jesus, that you loved Jesus before you loved anybody else, but it was at one time Jesus was your most important love, and now you've been distracted by other loves. And it's time to get back to that relationship. Right. The first sermon, that, the first revival sermon that I preached was, was that text that uh, you, you've lost your first love. And it's time to repent and get back to that loving relationship with him. This evening we can move on then to the loyal church. The loyal church is the church at Smyrna. And we can start at verse 8. To the angel of the church. Now remember, angel means messenger. And so each letter is addressed to, in my opinion, the pastor. It is addressed to whatever term they used for the spiritual leader of the church. I don't think it's addressed to an angel uh, in terms of the heavenly beings that we talked about on Sunday morning. Because that would mean that an angel, a heavenly being gave the information to John, and then John turned around and gave it back to another heavenly being. It would be kind of pointless. I believe that an angel of God, a messenger, a heavenly being, helped reveal all this to John. John then spoke to the angelos, the angel or the messenger of each church, the pastor. 
to the pastor, the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. You remember in that image, Jesus is the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega. And so here's a reference back to uh, chapter 1 where we met Jesus in that beautiful vision. And he says in verse 9, I know your tribulation. Here is one of those examples where you cannot assume every time you see the word tribulation that we're talking about the great tribulation, the seven years that will come later. The word tribulation means problems. This church is facing some, some terrible problems. Um, they, they, like all of the churches, are going through some terribly uh, harsh persecution. That is the tribulation that they're facing. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Don't you love that? Do you know rich, poor people? I do. And I know some poor, rich people. And that's what he's saying. I know your tribulation and I know your poverty. You have nothing in the bank, but you have full hearts. So really you are rich. He says, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, who would be people who say they are Jews but are not? By this time, Jesus has come to the Jews. Many of the Jews accepted and received Jesus and followed him. Many of them said, no, we don't acknowledge you as Messiah. We like our religious activity more than our faith in you as Messiah. And when they made that choice based on this phraseology, this language, they call themselves Jews but are not real Jews because they are not acknowledging the true Messiah. Does that make sense? So these would be those Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes that we hear about in the Gospels. Those who lead the church but have rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. And so he says, I, I know that those folks are, having, are, are causing problems in your church. Verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. One of the reasons I love that phrase is... You and I have made the mistake many times, and we've heard preachers, usually on TV, suggest that if you believe in God, if you're right with Him, then you'll be blessed and things will go well. Wouldn't it be great if that was true? The reality is nowhere in Scripture are we promised that we get to avoid the valley. The promise is, I'll go through the valley with you when you go through it. Right? And so that's one of the powerful parts of this, for this statement. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Yes, Christians suffer. And here is a declaration to this church. Church, things are fixing to get bad for you. He says, I, I know that you're already in tribulation and you're already in poverty, but things are about to get worse. 
Very straightforward, very truthful. And he says, when that happens, do not fear. Why? When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. That's why you don't have to fear. Behold, he says, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Now, we could, we could spend a lot of time debating 10 days. Some folks say that means 10 days, 10, 24-hour period. Some believe that that's a reference to the 10 different Roman uh, regimes, if you will, that, uh, that made life very difficult for early Christians. And there were 10 of them, 10 different Roman government entities or times that made things difficult on Christians. So some believe that that's what that refers to. Um, others who make one year equal one day believe that this means that they will have persecution for 10 years. Um, I usually, I, th this is not worth a big debate for me personally, but I usually wind up in the camp that says 10 days means that they're, they're, it's a limited time. Yes, it's going to be hard. A week and a half is a long time to suffer, but it's 10 days. There's a limit to it. It won't last forever. That's, that's where I kind of usually lean. But the, the, the promise is you're going to have tribulation for a time. You will be tested. But look what he says in the last part of verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You, uh, many of you know Dr. Paul Stripling, right? You, he was the uh, executive director. Back then we called them director of mission for the Waco Association. He was there for, I, I think, 428 years. Um, he, he was Moses' director of missions. Uh, yeah, he had three good jokes and told them over and over all the time. But one of the things that I loved about, and I do love him, he, he really is, is one, of, one of my top three mentors, and, and I, I have tremendous respect for Dr. Stripling. Um, and one of the things that I will always remember about him that endeared him to me is he would end almost every prayer with this verse. He would end his prayers by saying, Lord, help us that we may be faithful unto death and then receive the crown of life. And what a powerful prayer. And, and he got it from this text. Yes, it was written to the people at Smyrna who were undergoing great persecutions. But look at the very next statement in verse 11. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I told you that would come up over and over and over. He says to the people, you remain faithful even all the way to death. And if you'll do that, you'll get the crown of life. And then he says, I want every Christian of every time to hear that same thing. You and I are not facing the same persecution that Smyrna, Smyrna, right, yeah, that Smyrna faced. But we are challenged by the same challenge. Remain faithful to him all the way until your dying breath. 
and you'll receive the crown of life. At the end of each letter, he gives that kind of a promise. And look, look then to the last part of verse 11. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? Any idea? What's that? The lake of fire. John, uh, John 3. Oh, gosh, I forgot. I've got a little outline going up here. I should have been clicking through. Um, he shared with us the loveless church. Now we're talking about the loyal church. Um, John 3. Does, that, does John 3 ring a bell for anybody? What, is, what do you find in John 3? John 3.16. Conversation between Jesus and uh, was it Nicodemus? That doesn't sound right. Is that it? And he says... Um, you must be born again. And dude says, wait a minute, how, how can I be born again? Am I going to get back in my mama? What are you talking about? How, am I, how can I be born again? And Jesus explained to him that he was talking about a spiritual, a rebirth, a spiritual birth. We call it being born again. So there is a first birth, your physical birth. Then there is a second birth. Birth, your spiritual birth. Paul said that when you experience that second birth, you actually become a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, right? So if there's a first birth and a second birth, it stands to reason, doesn't it, that there is a first death and a second death. The first death is the physical death. You die when your heart stops. There is a spiritual death and that is that that takes place in the lake of fire separation from God for all eternity you spiritually die but the promise is when you remain faithful he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death we die once but we don't die the second time John chapter 11 Jesus told uh, Mary and Martha about Lazarus. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. You don't have the second death. You get to live forever. The crown of life. See? So 8 through 11 is written to the church at Smyrna. But aren't you glad that it's written to us as well? It's powerful, powerful stuff there. John yes. Yeah, there's, 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 there's two interesting parallels to the name. One is, is what you're pointing out. The name does refer to myrrh. You remember uh, what they brought Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh? And then when Jesus died, the women showed up on Sunday morning to embalm him and prepare his body. What they would One of the things they would have brought was myrrh. It, it's... Uh, it's smell good stuff. It's, it's an oil that is intended to smell good. So in that world, it was very uh, expensive. So yes, the, the people in that community probably had some money, kind of like oil people in West Texas. Uh, or now, oil people in Oklahoma. Wow. Um, 
So, but the church, the church would have missed out on that through persecution. People wouldn't do business with the people of the way, which was the first name of the church. They, they would have been persecuted. So they would have missed out on that. So they would have been poor was that first reference. The other interesting parallel is myrrh is what you put on dead people. And so Jesus speaks to the people of the place where they make smell good stuff for dead people. And he says, if you'll remain faithful all the way to death, then I'll give to you the crown of life. And you won't have a second death, you'll have life. So there, there is an interesting parallel there as well. Um, that people are familiar with death dying because their community kind of sells stuff for that. All right, let's uh, quickly move to Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, that imagery we saw in chapter 1. He pulls a, a piece of it out for each letter. And in this one, he uses the, the two-edged sword that is his tongue. That, that Jesus is able to speak directly to the heart and soul of a matter and to the heart and soul of a man. He can, he can use that. It's two-edged in that in one way he can cut away all the stuff that doesn't matter, and in another way he can use it for judgment, two-edged. He can, he, can, he can free us and he can judge us because he is the Lord. Now that's important in this letter. There's a reason that he chooses... The, the piece of the image that he uses for each letter. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He says, I know where you live. You live at Satan's house. And what, what he's referring to there is they live in a place that is, that is um, it's pagan. It's just an evil town. In this town, there are, um, there are places of worship for uh, false gods. They are surrounded by at least four major temples to major false gods, one of whom is Zeus, by the way. The other three I can't pronounce. So they're, they're in the midst of paganism, of false gods. And the things that happen in those temples are not godly by any means. Not only am I saying they worship idols and false gods, but they do things that you and I would, would know go exactly counter to God's laws. Uh, you know, there is temple prostitution. There's, uh, there's sacrifice of children in some cases. There's all kinds of terrible things that happen in uh, pagan worship. And they're surrounded by all that stuff. And so he says, I know where you live. I know you're in the middle of all the chaos and the craziness. And he says, um, 
But even in the midst of that, you hold fast to my name. This is the accommodation. This is saying, you guys, you guys are really something. Even though everyone around you denies me and, and uh, rebels against me, everyone around you uh, does terrible things in worship to false gods, but you have held fast to my name. That's a great thing to say. And then he's, in, in, in the last part of 13, he says, even in the days of Antipas. Now, Antipas was a martyr. Matter of fact, you see that, that next word, Antipas, my witness. Uh, the, the Greek word for witness is the word that we changed into martyr. A martyr and witness would be the same thing in this case. And Antipas was a, uh, was a believer who took a stand for Christ and was persecuted all the way to death. Tradition, not scripture, tradition says that um, the powers that be uh, put him inside a bronze bull and roasted him to death. Um, and it was a it was a you know a terrible time and a terrible place to be a Christian. And he says, even in the place where Satan dwells, you have held fast to my name. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. <laughs> I love it. You I mean you're doing great in this, but let's look over here. I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who Hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Now, we're not going to take time to go back to the story of Balaam and Balak. If you want to do that, look in Numbers chapters 25 through 31. But let me summarize it for you real quickly. And a very quick Crowder Reader's Digest version is Balak doesn't like Israelites. Balaam is basically a prophet for hire, a prophet for profit. Hey, that's this. There's a sermon title. He was a prophet for hire. Balak who doesn't like Israelites, hires Balaam to curse the people of Israel. God intervenes, and three different times, Balaam is unable to curse Israel. So, since he can't curse Israel, Balaam, the prophet for hire, says to Balak, I can't do that, but what might work is instead of cursing them, what if you entice them to break God's laws and go into sinful activities? And that's what they do. They find ways, women, to entice the men of Israel away from God's ways and into sinful activities. Now, He's making reference to that Old Testament story, and he's saying there's something similar happening in your church. You have allowed 
false teachers to entice God's people away into sinful activities. And uh, verse 15, thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, just for pronunciation, look at that word real, real carefully because the I comes before the T. If it was after the T, it would be Nicolaitans, but before it, it's Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans, we don't know nothing about, except we know that they were drawing people from truth into false teaching. They were pulling people away from God into what amounted to immorality. There's, a, again, tradition from the early church fathers says that these are the people who followed the teachings of a guy named Nicholas, who at one time was faithful in the church, but kind of got power happy. He was given an office in the church, and he got power happy. And so he kind of um, thought rules didn't apply to him, and he led people astray to do things they hadn't ought to do. Then the folks who started following that same kind of teaching, that same kind of behavior, took on his, were given his name, and so Nicholas' teaching became Nicolaitans. The details of that teaching, we really, don't, we really don't know. There seems to be some, um, there seems to be at least some evidence that there was clergy taking advantage of or, or, or um, keeping down the laity, uh, kind of a power Thing where the clergy were using the laity for their own means. But whatever it was, they were leading people away from God. And he says, that's happening in your church in verse 15. So in verse 16, repent therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. See, that's why he used the image, that piece of the image at the beginning. I'll make war with the sword in my mouth. What is that? Judgment. He says, either get these people straight or I'm on my way and it's not going to be pretty. 17, he who has ears, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone. A new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. And immediately we all say, what's the name on the stone? Well, didn't you hear him? He just said, you can't know that. We don't know. We don't know. I think that that is reference, especially to the fact that it's a white stone symbolizing purity. This is a new name written on a stone. The fact that it's written on a stone means that it can't be changed. You write something on a paper, it'll go away. You write something on a stone, it's there. And it is a new name. I take that to, to make a reference to our new nature. We become new creatures when we accept Christ and we really become believers. We have a new name 
that's written on a stone that can't go away. It's written in that Lamb's book of life. And later we're going to see that he doesn't erase names from the Lamb's book of life. So that's what I take the stone to mean. It's uh, uh, that your name is written. It's that, that name of the new you. And it's, it's in stone.